0: Well, good to see you this morning. My name is George Davis. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. So if you've got a Bible with you on a mobile device or just uh, take one out of the pew, hopefully somewhere around you. We're in this journey through the Old Testament we call Love This Book. So we're going to be in Genesis 37. We'll get there in a moment. Now, as a church, we want to be a place that helps you take next steps, and Nick has already mentioned that a great next step for you may be exploring one of our uh, Live Love Lead groups. Maybe some of you are here, you're newer to the church, and you would just say, well, right now, I just want to find out more about the church, and if that's the case, uh, my wife and I would love for you to join us uh, this afternoon at 1.30, on a regular basis, we have kind of just an open house, dessert social, where we invite people that are newer to the church into our home, to. You know, have just fellowship together, hospitality, but just to answer questions that you may have about the church. So we'll be doing that this afternoon. So we'd love to meet you if we can help you learn more about the Hershey Free Church. Now, as, uh, as our family has as grown up, our, now our youngest is a, actually a freshman in college. It's hard to believe that. He's an engineering student at a small college in Texas. And as you can imagine, you know, for me as a dad, there are regular conversations about, okay, so how are you doing? How are you doing with your homework? You're keeping up with your studies? And We have questions about how you're doing with the study skills, and at times I probe maybe a little too deeply, so I get something like, Dad, I've got this, which means, Dad, we need to change the conversation, and you know, there are those kinds of conversations, and this is really a fascinating journey for me because I know absolutely nothing about engineering that's been never a part of my academic background, so I'm learning so much in this process, and And one of the things I've discovered is at times he's talking about what he's learning, what he's doing in different classes. One of the lines he's used with me has been this. Well, Dad, this is just about learning to apply the right formula to the right problem. So he's got, you know, in in calculus or some of the, yeah, it's all about, and I have no idea what that is. I just pulled it off. Remember, I'm not a math guy. So um, hopefully I didn't get it the wrong way up or anything, but. You know, for my son, it's like, Dad, this is, this is what my journey's about. It's learning to apply the right formula to the right problem in the right way. Now, as I said, I'm not an engineering, I'm not an engineering guy, and probably most of us aren't. And yet, as I've thought about what my son has said, I, it has struck me that in, I think in different ways, this is kind of how we live life, isn't it? Over time, we, we get certain messages that kind of become Formulas. And and we apply those to life with the expectation that you know these underlying formulas will, will make life work. So for instance, some of us we grew up kind of with just with the expectation if you you know you work hard you'll be rewarded. And so that's, that's just been a formula we've, we've sought to apply to life. And now for those of us who are parents, you know, this is what we want to pass on to our kids. Okay, look, and I mean, this is a conversation I'm having with my son. You know, I know it's hard, and some of this is really theoretical, you're more hands-on, but you, you learn this, and you work hard, and it's going to make sense in the end. And so for some of us, we re- this, is, this is a formula we grow up with. It's a formula that's running in the back of our mind. It's not like we're conscious of it, but, but it's, it's in our mind how we think life really works. I think for some people, that maybe the underlying formula is something like this. Well, it's a formula about self-discovery. Discover who you are, then be true to yourself, and, and live according to that plan. And that may be you. That's, that's kind of how you have approached life. Likewise, I, I think for some people, the expectation, the underlying formula is this. If I gain enough expertise, if I gain enough competence, then I can control the outcome. Right? If I gain the, you know, if, if I gain the right skill set and you know, I became very profi- if I become very proficient, then, then I can always control my vocational path. I think we can even do this in relationships, we can even do this in parenting. If I just become competent enough as a parent, then then I can can determine what what will be my kid's future. So these these are, you know, different kinds of formulas, I think, that can be working in our lives, whether we're really aware of them or not. And even as we have formulas about life, I think we also have formulas about God. And for many people, I think a basic formula that we may have about God goes something like this. Good behavior plus God's blessing equals a life that goes according to plan. Now, the truth is, this is never something you would hear in church, right? It's never going to be, this is never going to be the main point of a sermon. But I think actually this this formula may be at work in Christian circles more than we realize. If, you know, just if good behavior, and then God's going to bless me and and my career's going to go according to plan. You now, when I do the right thing, God is going to bless me and my family's going to be great. When I do the right thing, God's going to bless me and I'm never going to have any unexpected health issues or financial crises or uncertainties. I think one way sometimes I, I, I see this, <laughs> here's one place where I, I sometimes see this at work, and I, I have to admit I'll see this in my own life. So I think sometimes when we talk about prayer and God answering prayer, underlying our conversation is this formula because isn't it the case whenever we say (laughs) whenever we say well God answered my prayer what we mean is it's now going according to plan right isn't that I mean just think about how when we talk when we use that language usually what's happened is hey things are now going according to plan but here's the challenge At some point in your life you will discover moments where this formula doesn't work. For some people, at some point they discover the formula doesn't work, they walk away from their faith. For some people they discover the formula doesn't work, they become cynical. For some people they discover the formula doesn't work, so why even consider Christianity? For some people the formula doesn't work, so you just kind of become kind of just take a step back and get kind of comfortable with being very casual about God, about faith. At some point, if you haven't already, you will discover this, this, the formula just doesn't work. When I think about that, I think about a situation in my 20s, and it was just a hard season of life, and, and I made a decision that I knew was the right decision. I knew it was a wise decision. But not, not everyone around me saw it that way. Furthermore, when I made that decision, in some ways my life became more complicated. And I've got to tell you, personally, this sent me into a spiritual and emotional tailspin because I thought, you know, this is clearly the right path to choose. I've made a hard decision. It's a wise decision. Now, God, you're supposed to bless me and it's supposed to get back according to plan. And it didn't happen that way. Formula broke down. Can I suggest to you that the, these are moments, if you know what I'm talking about, you've been there, these are moments that perhaps invite us to rethink our understanding of life and our understanding of how God works. This morning we are continuing this journey through uh, the Old Testament. We're going through the first half of the Old Testament. beginning of this year, and we're calling it Love This Book, and we're now coming to the last major section of the book of Genesis. And just over the next few moments, what I want to invite you to do is just, let's just be open to the way this storyline can perhaps challenge and reshape and perhaps reform our understanding of, of God. Let's just be open to the way this this section perhaps is going to challenge this formula that many of us are working with so now let's come to uh, Genesis 37 we're continuing to work our way through this book and we're following the storyline of a guy named Abraham and his family remember as we've seen God comes to Abraham and he makes some amazing promises Abraham I'm going to be with you I'm going to bless you I'm going to bless the world through you And starting from that point, really starting from chapter 12, the kind of the underlying question that I think we're to have as the reader is this, so how's he going to do this? How's he going to work through this family? I mean, these are amazing promises. Is this just empty rhetoric exactly? How is this going to take place? So now we come to chapter 37, years later, right, we are continuing to to watch this family story unfold, and now we're to Jacob's family. Now, as you study Abraham and his family, and we've talked about this before, but this is a complicated family. And as you study the family, I mean, generation after generation, we see themes like deception, we see favoritism, we see alienation, we see separation. And this continues as as we get to Jacob's family. We've already been given a bit of Jacob's story in terms of his genealogy, but we're really given fuller a uh, fuller introduction to Jacob's family, chapter thirty-seven, and we're we're introduced to the favorite son of the family. His name is Joseph. And right, right at the very beginning, we're told that favoritism is a work in this family. I mean, we see this in Genesis chapter 37.3. Right at the beginning of right, this part of the storyline. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made, an, it, it's, it's a, we, we sometimes refer to it as a colorful coat, but it was, some, it was some kind of ornate robe. So he's got the special coat because he's the special son. Furthermore, this favoritism is, is complicated by the fact that, you know, Joseph has these dreams, and he dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. And you can only imagine how telling them the dream builds family unity, right? <laughs> now, we have to be careful about reading between the lines, but I think, I think in some sense the, the author is saying, you know, this isn't the best first impression that we have of Joseph. Joseph. I mean, you know what happens in a family when there's a favorite kid, right? You know what happens maybe when there hasn't been, you know, kind of equal relationships and there's just a strong sense of favoritism. You've seen that. You know what it does to people. And our first take on Joseph is he's, he's a bit of a spoiled brat. Right? I mean... And then the story unfolds, right? We we go further, and I know you know most of us we're, we're familiar with the stories. The brothers have gone out grazing their flocks. They're close to a place called Shechem, which is along a trade route, and Joseph is sent to check on them. And when they they see him coming, there's there's actually a conversation about killing him. And then one of the brothers, Reuben, intervenes. Now let's throw him into a cistern, right? A, a giant. Most likely, a giant stone container, earthen container to retain water, a deep well. And so, in their anger, they just throw him in there, and that's what we're going to do with him. And finally, another brother, Judah, intervenes and says, "Well, let's let's sell him to, let's sell him to one of these traveling merchants because they were, they were grazing their flocks close to a, a place that would have been frequented by merchants." So they sell him into slavery, and they fake his death. Now, I think this is the point. You know, we're so familiar with this story that I'm not sure we always let it sink in for a moment. But I want you to just for a moment, let's let it sink in. And I want to do it this way. Uh, The reality is all of us, to some degree, we know tension, we know hard moments in family relationships. That's, That's true in any family, right? There's no such There's no such thing as a perfect family. Every family is a dysfunctional family in some form or fashion. Let's just get that out on the table. Some of us know it more than others. Some of you are here, and it it is painful for me to bring up the issue of family or extended family because even now there's some deep hurt, there's some deep woundedness, maybe there's estrangement or alienation. So to differing degrees, we sit here, as a community this morning, and we know, we know the hardship of family, but let me ask you this, in, in all the, you know, I mean, I, I've got a younger sister, and we had our moments growing up, and you know, that's just part of it, we get along really well now that we're thousands of miles apart, and <laughs> no, no, I love my sister, really, because uh, she may hear this, I love my sister, uh, mom, tell her I love my sister when you hear the sermon today, mom, thank you, uh, But let me ask you this, because I know some of you, there's some really deep hurt there, and I don't want to in any way minimize that. But have any of us ever actually come to the point that we talked about taking the life of a family member? That that just became part of the conversation? So once again, we're so familiar with the story, let's just slow down for a moment and ask this question. How much hurt, how much favoritism How many toxic conversations, how many bad interactions had to be a part of this family that we could actually have this kind of conversation, that it actually brought us to this moment? I mean, this is a messed up family. This is a crazy family. This is a family that if they walked in that door today and we knew a little bit of their background, the last thing we would say is, well, God's at work in that family, right? This isn't a family that should be in the Bible. This is a family that should be on Dateline, okay? Right? Tonight's episode is all about, right? And yet, this is, this is the storyline of what God's doing. And, and, of course, and, and so when we slow down and we start to, really, oh, my goodness, here's what's going on. It's bringing up these questions. Okay, how can God be at work here? Is he really keeping his promises? Joseph sold into slavery. But then we get to chapter 38, and chapter 38 just kind of feels a bit like a throw-in, but it's part of the story. In fact, you could pull out chapter 8 and we wouldn't miss it because we would go right from the end of chapter 37 to the beginning of 39, and it's all about Joseph. But chapter 38 is about one of the other brothers that we've just seen. It's about Judah. And we're told at the beginning of, of chapter 38 that Judah leaves his family. This is what 38.1 says. In the time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Now, this doesn't hit us as surprising, but understand in this culture, the fact that he leaves his family, that he walks away from his legacy, this shows us how broken and complicated the family really is. This is a slap in the face. This just shows you the level of tension and conflict and dysfunction that's at work in this family that he leaves. He walks away from their legacy. He walks away from their calling. He walks away from their everything. And he starts a family. He has kids. He gets married. He has kids. And one of his sons, Erk, gets married and um, he dies. His oldest son dies. And the widow, Tamar, is left without children. Now, we're not going to go into all the details of the story. I understand there's a lot of cultural nuance here that takes a little while to unpack, but but ultimately, out of desperation, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, and and Judah unknowingly gets his own daughter-in-law pregnant. And once again, it just feels like this negative cycle, these negative patterns are just, you know, these things repeat themselves in families, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of the negative, junk it just goes down from generation to generation. And now you see Judah, who has deceived his father, who's now being deceived by his daughter-in-law, and the pattern continues. He, too, the first impression is not particularly favorable. He comes across as a disappointing, self-absorbed person. And once again, we naturally ask these questions. Okay, God, we have these big promises early in the book, but where are you at, and what's going on? And to some degree, those questions only intensify when we get to chapter 9. Right now, Jude, uh, now, now we pick up with the Joseph story again. Joseph is in Egypt. He's in the household as a slave of, of Potiphar, a very powerful individual. And now Joseph seems to be growing up. He'd been sold into slavery as a teenager, but now he seems to, you know, that bratty kid seems to, he seems like he's on a positive trajectory. He's making wiser choices. You know, becoming more responsible, even to the point that he he refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife. I mean, it's kind of a right. This is we all remember this. It's a high point. He makes the the right choice. But you know what? This this is the moment where our formula just falls apart, right? Because this is the moment right where, well, he made the wise choice, good behavior, now God's going to bless him and everything's going to go according to plan. This is supposed to be the happily ever after moment. Right now, right here, right at this moment. But instead things get more complicated. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. And I can't help but believe there's even a layer of cynicism here. Now, this is reading between the lines, so we have to be careful. But I actually think that deep in his heart, Potiphar knew his wife was lying. Maybe she had done this kind of thing before. Maybe he's just, you know, Joseph had to go into prison, I think, just to save face. But I actually believe this. Potiphar was a man of such standing that had he actually believed Joseph did what he was accused of, Joseph would not have been thrown into prison. Joseph would have been executed. So arguably, there's there's even just this a deepening layer of cynicism, right? And and in some ways, things only get more complicated because, okay, so Joseph's thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he meets, right, he meets the royal cupbearer and, and the baker, and in Different ways these guys have gotten into trouble, so they're in prison as well. Both of them have dreams. Joseph explains them, both. And the cupbearer is restored, right? Here's, okay, here's his ticket out of here. He is restored to the royal household. And Joseph's final words to him are, hey, don't forget me. And then we're told, and he forgot him, Right? I mean, these are such disheartening developments. It's like you're right on the verge of this big breakthrough because Joseph's been responsible and it doesn't happen. And yet, interestingly, it's it's right in this moment, right in this section of the storyline, that the author also chooses to be very overt in highlighting a theme. In chapter 39, the author is very intentional in highlighting this theme, that God is with Joseph. So look at uh, Genesis 39 two, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master and two other times in this chapter that theme will be stated clearly again God was with Joseph God was with Joseph and see this is the point where we want to push back and go hey excuse me aren't you painting a pretty rosy picture? Because I thought, well, if if you do the right thing, God's with you, God blesses you, then things go according to plan. Clearly things are not going according to plan. How can you say God was with Joseph? And the author says, nope, God was with Joseph. In fact, he was blessing him even in a hard situation, even though it wasn't going quite according to plan. And you're like, no, that's not how it works. And in essence, I think the author is pushing back on us and saying, "Maybe you need to rethink your formula. Maybe your formula isn't actually the way God works. Maybe your formula is just too simplistic." So Joseph's life seems to be—it's this pattern, right? It almost feels like two steps forward, three steps back. Some of you have been there, and then finally, there is a breakthrough. Pharaoh has dreams. It's brought to his attention. There's this guy in prison who can really interpret dreams, even though all your associates can't. So Joseph is brought out. Joseph is able to provide the interpretation. And Joseph is elevated to a position of power and leadership as Pharaoh's chief administrator. And finally, it's like, and now we'll get to the happily ever after moment, right? But then the story takes another twist and another turn because due to famine conditions throughout the region, Joseph's brothers, right, they eventually come to Egypt looking for food. They're brought before Joseph. He recognizes them, but they they don't recognize him. Why should they? They only knew him as a slave. Now he's a chief administrator. And, And here's, you know, this is the point where the plot really gets interesting, Because there's this series of interesting interactions between Joseph and his brother over the next few chapters. Uh, And as Joseph, you know, interacts with his brothers, it's generated all kinds of conversation. What's going on here? Um, I mean, is Joseph trying to get revenge? Is he toying with that? Maybe there's a little bit of that. I don't know. But I think ultimately over time what's happening is Joseph is just wondering, has anything changed with my family? this crazy, dysfunctional, broken family that I grew up in? Has anything changed? So at one point, Joseph forces his brothers right, to bring back the son that had been left behind, Benjamin. Right. Once, once Joseph was out of the picture, Benjamin was the new favorite. Benjamin was the new flavor of the month. And... Now they are forced to bring him to Egypt. And when they bring him, now Joseph puts on the pressure. He threatens to take Benjamin as his own slave. And this is a point in chapter 44 where the story really gets interesting because we have this long speech by Judah in the middle of chapter 44. Do you remember Judah? Remember, Judah was the guy that said, hey, let's sell the kid into slavery. Judah was the guy that walked away from his family in a very dishonorable manner. You remember him? But now, Judah... Judah, the guy that wanted, to get, that wanted to get rid of the first favored son, now Judah is the guy who wants to stand in for the second favored son. In fact, right at the end of this amazing speech, Judah says this, Now then, please let your servant, that's me, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, in place of Benjamin, and let the boy, Benjamin, return with his brothers. Now think about that. The same guy that had wanted to get rid of Joseph is now at a point in his life where he's willing to stand in for Benjamin, the other favored son. And he's willing to say, take me instead. You know, when we read these chapters, um, we often exclusively focus on the story of Joseph. But it's actually a story of two brothers. I mean, you know, God's been doing some fascinating things in Judah's life, obviously, by this point. And as it turns out, this mixed up guy who was once willing to betray his own brother will ultimately become part of the royal line of Jesus. it's after you know let's think about this it is after this speech that joseph you know he can't he can't hide anymore he has to reveal himself to his brothers and so he dismisses all of the egyptians it's just just the brothers and he reveals himself and he weeps and there's this amazing moment of family renewal a family reunion a family restoration and this really begins in chapter 45 and it builds to kind of this culminating scene in chapter 50 and we you know we get to chapter 50 and there, there are these monumental words that Joseph says it, you know as he's looking at his brothers and they're still fearful that he's going to seek revenge and he said but Joseph says to them don't be afraid am I in the place of God you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So finally we get, to, right, we get to the end of this kind of crazy story with all the turns and dysfunction and hardship and disappointment. And Joseph is able to look back and say, you know what? God has actually been at work all along. And ultimately, I think this is this summary, it's not just a summary of Joseph's life experience. It's a summary of what we've been reading in the storyline of Genesis. That in, in the midst of all these twists and turns and family dysfunction and all the surprising elements, God is actually at work fulfilling his promises. While at times God may seem silent, he is not absent. He is fulfilling what he promised to do. In fact, go back, let me just take you back to one of those statements in Genesis chapter 39. You remember when the author is telling us, hey, God is with him, God is with him. So notice this, Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The term used for kindness here is a very important Hebrew term in the Old Testament. I mean, sometimes we think kindness and, well, that's just being nice. But this, this is a more robust term than that. In places, what this term ultimately comes to mean is covenantal faithfulness. God's rock solid ability to fulfill and complete everything He said He would do. So, right in the middle of this story, we are told God is with you, I will be faithful to my promises. I will be with you, I will be faithful, therefore you can trust me. I will be with you, I will be faithful, therefore you can take risk. I will be with you, I will be faithful, therefore the hard parts are not the end of the story. I will be with you, I will be faithful, therefore when you get off track, you don't have to stay stuck. You know, reading this, I I can't help but fast forward to the story of Jesus with his disciples as he is com- commissioning and preparing them and and you know he never says he never gives them the formula that you know what life's going to go according to plan he never gives them that formula what he does say is this i will be with you he says yes you're going to experience trouble there are going to be some surprises and hardship all along the way but i will be with you as we're seeing, this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. We're tracing this theme as we go through, love this book, and it ultimately is a theme that brings the Bible together. God's promise, his desire to be with his people. With that in mind, I, here's, here's just, I think, one takeaway from the story of Joseph that we, we need to grapple with. And that, that's the simple truth, that my hard places are never beyond his promises. My hard places are never beyond his promises. You know, sometimes in our hard places, it just feels like, hey, it just feels like my life's over. It just feels like things are over. Sometimes we, we look back on our lives and there are these moments of regret, things we can't undo. It's like, I wish I could go back, but I can't. and So I just, I feel like, It's over. That dimension of my life is over. Or maybe I'm in a situation right now and and there are just so many factors in the situation right now that I'm in that are just beyond my control. And it just feels like the story's over. What Joseph learned, I mean, he gets to the end and it's like he looks back and, you know, he's able to say this with weather-beaten experience of the hardness of life at times, but he looks back and says, you know, but the hard places were never beyond God's promises. They were never beyond God's promises. And I think this, this leads to a question. Just, this is really the question I want to leave us with this morning. Just, just let this soak in for a moment. And the question is this. What would I do if I were absolutely convinced that God was with me? what would I do if I were absolutely convinced that God was with me? And I realize, I realize some of us are, you know, we're followers of Christ, and you're like, well, I do just what I'm doing. But I think there are others of us we are, are followers of Jesus, and, and yet the truth is, if we're honest, it's like I'm, I'm not living in a way that I'm absolutely convinced that he's with me. So even to kind of drill down, make it even more concrete, this week, what would I do if I were absolutely convinced that God was with me? Now here's what this meant for Joseph. Here's what this meant for Joseph. I mean, Joseph gets to the end of the end of his life, he looks back, he's, "You know what, God has been with me. Even in the hard places, they were never beyond his promises. and this, this is what Joseph. Really, I think he's saying at the end. He's saying, look, you know what? God is with me, and because God is with me, when things are going well, I realize I'm not sovereign. Right? Remember, he's at this critical moment. Man, revenge is right in front of him. He could snap his fingers, his brothers could be dead. It would be a great story ending, wouldn't it? You know, what goes around comes around. But he gets to the end, and he says, you know, I'm not in the place of God. See, he's looked back, and he says, look, I realize God has been with me. All along this journey. And now that things are going well, I also realize this isn't just a time. This is not a time for self-sufficiency. I'm not sovereign. He is. So even now, how do I, how do I walk with him? And how do, how do I live as part of this bigger story? So for Joseph, because God is with me, it means when things are going well, I'm not sovereign. But likewise, because God is with me, it means when things are, going, are getting complicated, I'm not simply a victim. Right? What does he say? You know what? You meant it for evil. He's not downplaying what they did. We're not sugarcoating it. We're not saying it doesn't matter. It did. What you did, you meant for evil. He calls it out. But that's not the end of the story. But God was at work for good. Yeah, it's been a hard place, but I wasn't simply a victim because God was with me. So this week what I mean, just before just let this question sink in this week for me, if I'm a follower of Christ, what, is it, what does it mean to take seriously that God is with me? If I really believe that, what would what would this next chapter look like? What would this season? What would this week look like? Maybe for you, it's just confronting you know, when I really embrace the fact that God is with me, it's confronting those thoughts that sometimes run in my mind about my past, things that I've done that I can't undo, or or places where my life got off track, or things that I experienced that I shouldn't have experienced. And it's not allowing me to see that that's the end of the story, because if God is with me, the storyline continues. Maybe there's something right in front of me that is really hard health-wise, job-wise, relationship-wise, family. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to get around it. I don't know if there is another side to this. And it, it just almost feels like you just kind of just throw up your hands and give up. Are you kind of back away from taking God seriously? And yet when we do that, what we're missing out on, and, and we see this in the story of Joseph, we see it in the story of Judah, we lose sight of the fact that God has this ability to leverage our worst to accomplish his best. So maybe with whatever this is in front of me, it's just, okay, God, I don't want to just walk away. I, just want, I don't want to just throw up my hands in frustration. How do, how do I walk... <laughs> this journey with you. And what does that look like? For some of us, maybe it's just, we just need to hear this story as as an encouragement to keep going forward with the confidence that he is with us. So I ask you this again. This week, what would I do? What would I do if I were absolutely convinced that God is with me. Let's pray together. Gracious God, this is, for many of us, I think, a very familiar story. We've known the story since we were kids, and, and frankly, I think sometimes when we're so familiar with the story, we, we lose sight of the rough edges. We lose sight of the complexity, the craziness. And we lose sight of the reality of that question. How can God actually be at work through this family and these pages and these stories? Father, some of us, I think we need to kind of just put aside some of the formulas we've been working with. Sometimes we thank you, we have you figured out, but we don't. Sometimes we think we can fit you into a block, a, a box, a formula, but that's not how you operate. And yet even in those moments where it feels like you are silent, may we know that you are not absent. May we be reminded this morning that you are faithful to your promises. And even the hard places are never beyond those promises. In Jesus' name.